Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Touchdown together. Red Rum and Les Gargo. On the right of the picture, it's Les Gargo. Tommy Carberry on the left, it's Red Rum. Trying to make national history with Brian Fletcher and he's the first under pressure, Red Rum. As they come to the final fence in the national. In third place, it's Spanish Steps and over the last, they touch down together. Spanish Steps and Red Rum. And Red Rum now with a fractional advantage. Uh, Red Rum with a, for Les Gargo rather with a fractional advantage now over Red Rum. And Les Gargo is going to avenge last year's defeat. And Tommy Carberry is going to become the first jockey in history to win the Gold Cup and the Irish National and the English National as Les Gargo strides clear 12 years old to win the National for Raymond Guest and here he comes to the line Les Gargo, the comfortable winner of the 1975 National the little hero who won it last year and the year before Red Rum is second, Spanish Steps come to the line Only two horses in the history of our great sports have won both the Gold Cup and the Grand National, the great Golden Miller and a legend who is the subject of a new book by David Owen, an award-winning sports journalist and the author of No Snail, the story of Les Gargo, the horse that foiled Red Rum. David has been a prominent voice in sports journalism for over 30 years and his latest book is a captivating tale that not only celebrates one of the greatest racehorses of all time, but also offers a fascinating insight into the world of jumps racing. David, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to speak to you on the Final Furlong Podcast. Uh, thank you for having me on, Emmett. Out of all the horses you could have written about, what inspired you <laughs> to focus on a book about Les Gargot? And how did you go about researching his story? I just couldn't believe nobody had done it at the time. Um, I was very surprised to, to, to find out during lockdown that there's no, no book had been done on him. Um, a notebook either, not a full-length one, on, on Tommy Carberry, his, uh, his jockey, most of the time. And I just thought he deserved one, basically. So um, that, that's why I set about it. Um, fortunately for me, the people around him turned out to be uh, very interesting as well. And some of the patterns that jump racing throws up that you can only see in, in retrospect are part of the story as well. Um, for example, a lot of people know that uh, Dan Moore's association with the horse, the, the, the trainer. Not so many know that um, prior to that, Jimmy Brogan owned him uh, in in Meath. And one of the one of the uh, great discoveries that w- was new to me, at any rate, th- that I found out while researching the book was the uh, the famous 1938 Grand National, which was was absolute heartbreak for Dan Moore because he he lost it by, well, I think. He was convinced he won, but but without a photo finish uh, equipment there, uh, he, he he lost by a, a nostril basically to Battleship. Uh, he was second in that race, but Jimmy Brogan was third. Uh, so um, I, I you know I, lo- I love writing about uh, horse racing. One one of the reasons for that is the the, the coincidences and patterns in, in history it throws up. 
as you mentioned, that there hadn't been a book on Lescargo previously. Why do you yeah. think that is, given the fact that he is one of only two horses to have achieved that incredible feat of winning a Gold Cup, and he won two yeah. and a Grand National? Why has he not quite permeated through the history of racing in the way others have? I think one of the reasons was, if you think about it, well, first of all, unlike Golden Miller, his double didn't wasn't done in the same year. Mm. Um, and when he won the Grand National... <laughs> I don't know, Ireland, it was probably different, but in Britain, if you remember, everybody was at Aintree waiting for Red Rum's unprecedented hat-trick. It was the first time, he'd won the previous two, and uh, this was the first time he went for the hat-trick. Obviously, eventually he did it two years later, but that meant Lescargo was a party pooper, basically. Um, and Aintree was going through a difficult time then as well with the, the the Topham era coming to an end. Uh, so it was kind of a strange atmosphere there. I think that's one reason. Another reason was, um, unfortunately, he kind of got spirited away to the United States by his owner after his career. When, uh, you know, had he been around today, he'd have been touring race courses, wouldn't he? Doing opening fates and things. He'd be a sort of national celebrity in Ireland if, if and he probably still would have been in the 70s and 80s had he stayed in Ireland but unfortunately um, he got uh, uh, as I say spirited away to America by, by Raymond Guest his owner um, he also I think it's fair to say people who uh, knew him far better than me say in terms of his personality and character the horse wasn't at all like uh, Arkel, for example, who had this presence around him. And he wasn't a sort of immediate good looker. He was just a, an astonishingly good and astonishingly tough racehorse. So I think a combination of those three reasons, probably. And it should be pointed out that he was brought to America, but did live a long, happy life. He passed away at the age of 24 in, in 1987. So at least he had that. But you are he, right. Yeah, I mean, he was... Yeah, he was looked after. I mean, you know, he was a wealthy man, Raymond Guest, and and one of the reasons he he uh, took him back was to make sure he was he was safe and had the retirement he he deserved. So yeah, absolutely. He uh, uh, somebody said to me he was he was in straw up to his hocks for the last decade of his life. So that was good. <laughs> but you are right though, because legendary horses like Hardy Eustace and Hurricane Fly, uh, B for Salmon, they would parade before racing Stradivarius when he was retired would be brought out and paraded here and there uh, obviously he's got a, an important job to be doing at stud and and that's a, a good a, a very interesting thing that I hadn't thought of that he was essentially taken away from the public consciousness by being moved to another country uh, for all that he was given a great yeah. retirement you, you did mention though about his about his frailties he was initially considered too small and frail to even be a racehorse uh, which which is quite remarkable so how did he overcome those obstacles and what lessons can people learn from being dismissive of a horse of, of his stature uh, initially to then learn actually a horse like Attraction, for example? They couldn't sell her. No one wanted her with the way she was walking. It turned out she might have had an right, unconventional yeah. way of moving, but she was a, a classic winner. Well, yeah, it's, it just shows it's like another of the beauties of the sport. You you just can't tell. Even, even people who are so, you know, the best judges there are of horse flesh. You, you just can't always tell. You just have to let time take its passage. Um, I, I, I've also done a book about Foynaven, and one of the things I found out there was that when the two horses were young at the Draper's Yard at Kilsalligan, um, 
they kind of thought Foynaven was probably a better prospect than Arkle. So, you know, you just can't tell. <laughs> My favorite story about Foynaven. It wasn't Goran Park, because uh, I'm, I'm from Kilkenny, but it was whatever. Oh, right, yes. It was whatever race course was in existence before Goran. Um, he took a brutal fall and stayed on the ground. And the yeah, it was Baldoyle. It was Baldoyle. Thank you. I could never remember what that it track was. It was Baldoyle. And yeah. his, his if you're interested in that story, yeah, if you're interested in that story, um, I spoke to three eyewitnesses and they all gave different accounts. Sorry, I spoke to two of them, and the other one is Pat Taft's account in his autobiography, which is a brilliant book. But uh, they all gave slightly, you know, quite significantly different uh, accounts of what actually happened. But anyway, so the, this the is, thing about him falling. Yeah, this is the version. The this is the version that I, that I heard about it. That he's he's basically stricken on the ground, and the Taft team run yeah. over to him to attend to him and and look after him. And it turns out. He wasn't stricken at all. He was just grazing on grass and being quite lazy. Yeah. And once yeah. Arkel's owner found out about that, she cut all ties with him and sold the horse. But there's obviously two different versions of that. Uh, this, yeah, it's, it's not it's not quite true. I mean, that's the, that's the sort of... Um, uh, the, the way the myth has come down, people people who know about it. But, but actually... <laughs> In terms of dollars and cents, that was his last chance of qualifying for the 65 Grand National. They had him down as a national horse. Um, uh, and because he fell, he, 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 he wasn't going to get in that race. And the 65 Grand National at that time, people suspected it might be the very last one. So I think they sold him because his value was set to, to plummet for those two reasons. As it turned out, <laughs> a month later, he won the uh, Fox Rock Cup at Leopardstown, hence qualifying for the next three Grand Nationals, but 66, 67, 68, um, which a lot of people thought were never going to be run. So again, that, that, that was, a, I would have thought, a fairly strong argument for trying to sell him. To, as, as, I mean, you know, it was, like, it was like at one time all Scottish footballers came to England to, mm. uh, you know, when they acquired a certain stature in the 60s, Irish racehorses, by and large, when they, when they got good, were sold to England, weren't they? It yeah. doesn't happen anymore. No, thankfully, but that, is, that was even the yeah, case absolutely. in the 80s and, and the 90s. We would, we would be lucky to walk away with one winner at Cheltenham. Um, and, and that was absolutely almost the legend of, of Foynaven in that he was just such a slow racehorse that when all that carnage <laughs> happened in the Grand National, that the jockey was able to pinpoint the one little gap in, in the fence that was still there that he could jump through and, and go on to win. Yeah. But um, I'll have to give yeah. that book a read because it's, it's a very, very intriguing story. I, I spoke to Richard Pittman um, just before the Grand National and we recapped yes. that, that epic Grand National with Crisp. And I wasn't aware of the pressures that Aintree was under. You've just mentioned the pressures it was under in the 60s. Those pressures were still very much there in the 70s. And he thought, uh, going out to ride Crisp, that that was going to be the last ever Grand National run at Aintree. He thought that was going to be the last one as well, did he? Yeah, well, yeah. there you go. It's, I mean, there were so many, you know, in inverted commas, last Grand Nationals. It, it, you know, probably 10 were, were, were regarded at one time or another as well, probably the last Grand National. But... Uh, uh, thankfully, that that wasn't the case. Yeah, he even talked about how there was a point-to-point race course, uh, and that that was going to be redeveloped as the new entry, if you like. But that it wouldn't have been the same, uh, and it certainly would no. have been a, a devastating blow given the proximity that entry has to Liverpool. But what role did Lescar go have in in saving the race? 
Um, I, I've a minor one, I suppose. By by, I mean, just by being a very good horse to enter the race again. Uh, you know, famously, uh, and Duchess of Westminster would not run Arkle in the Grand National. Um, uh, and that she was by no means the the only owner of of, of top top horses who who didn't didn't want to put them in in for the race. Um, Guest and 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 Dan Moore, um, you know, putting a dual gold cup winner into the Grand National was quite a statement. Um, and he actually won ran in the race four times, um, and the first time he uh, was brought down. Uh, the first open ditch, uh, and Tommy Carberry was of the opinion, uh, insofar as you can, having jumped two fences, that he didn't really like the place. Uh, it would have been the easiest thing in the world for them to um, decide. No, we, we, you know, this isn't for him. We're not, we're, we're not going to put him in for this. Uh, whereas, in fact, they took the opposite approach. There was a, unusually a Liverpool meeting uh, in the autumn uh, where there was a race. Uh, with relatively few horses, where they knew he could jump round a circuit of the national fences in his own time, they put him in for that. He came second, and you know the rest is history, if you like. He 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 had to come up against Red Rum in all his remaining three races, lost to him twice, uh, and then the last time, with a bit more of a, a weight advantage, he uh, he 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 managed to beat him. Um, but yeah, he, go on. He was still lumping around quite a bit of weight, and he was—he wasn't a spring chicken by the time he won his 1975 Grand National. No, he was twelve. Yeah. He was twelve. Um, uh, but again, uh, that wasn't so unusual in those days. You know, it was a very different race. Um, I think there were th- three twelve-year-old winners in the sixties alone. I think um, so. It wasn't that. Um, it wasn't as unusual. Um, and although, as you say, he had, you know, he was one of the top weights, he, uh, crucially, he was being given weight by red rum for once, uh, 10 pounds, I believe it was. And also the, 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 the weather worked in his favor. Red, red rum liked, um, good ground at least. Um, uh, the weather was pretty atrocious in 75. He got, he got, uh, he got dead, dead ground with red rum with, 12 stone not a particularly big horse it it it, it obviously took it took it out of him and uh you know lescargo romped away with it in the end even though they went over the last together he won by 15 lengths and for all that the crowd were hoping for a red rum victory which obviously lescargo was the party pooper of as you said earlier on it's still one of the most memorable renewals of the grand national it's still an iconic race what was it that made yeah, that performance a- so special uh, it's it, just the quality of of those uh, who took part. You know, I, I I think that in those times when the race was really in danger for its future, the the actual races themselves. Uh, I think Aintree was very lucky because it had, you know, Foynaven in sixty seven. You could sort of say, you know, for the for the sort of man and woman in the street, that was the most grand nationally grand national, you know, because because there were so many fallers, it was absolute chaos. That's what, you know, people who don't know racing in those days might have thought was a typical um, grand national or, or the ultimate grand national, rather. Then you had this great duel between crisp and red rum. 
um, with with you know both horses running their races to perfection and crisp striding away with it because he was basically a two miler. It was extraordinary how how long he he, he lasted out um, and just being caught in the on the line. You you, you know the, the the story. So that was like the ultimate duel. And then seventy five was like the 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 arguably the highest quality Grand National that there had been because you had this the twice winner red rum you had the dual gold cup winner lescaga you also had do you remember spanish steps who 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 was placed several times really good horse with bread winner and you had the dickler another gold cup winner and and they were not only were they in the race they finished uh, i believe first second third and fifth so they were they were they were they were on the start line, but they were also right up there in the race. So it was a really high quality uh, renewal. And Glanford Brig, by the way, who led for a long time, uh, came fourth in the World Cup. So he was no mug either. Um, it was a very high quality race, seventy five. And there are parallels between the Grand National of then and the Grand National of today. Clearly, it's a very very different race, and there's no risk to entry being yeah. sold or. Actually, no. entry had been sold. That was the problem. It was gone to a property developer, and thankfully, they they managed to to change things there. Uh, you'd mentioned the, the Toppums and how their legacy was coming to an end, and some in the racing community weren't happy with the Toppums at all. Uh, but we'll, we'll move swiftly along. But given the pressures that Aintree is currently facing with the animal rights protesters, who I, I have no problem with someone's peaceful right to protest, but these are very misguided individuals. And they have absolutely no idea of the catastrophic damage that they will do to the breed if this industry was to come to an end. And there's no plan to look after yeah. the 50,000 horses. But having yeah. lived through that and now seeing this, are you concerned for the future of the Grand National? I think, uh, I mean, yes, I am. I think it will probably continue to exist. But, I, you know, there just seems to be this endless pressure for changes um the same with the whip i mean how long have we been talking about whip rules about, years you know it seems to be the last 15 years um and the issue never goes away and and given that you're never going to have an entirely safe i mean you'll never have an entirely safe flat race never mind a, a, an entirely safe steeplechase um I don't think the pressure is ever going to end. So if the race is, is to continue in the in the long term, it needs the industry to get absolutely behind it, I think, because because otherwise these um, people are operating, as you say, largely from a basis of of, of ignorance. I mean, they, they they're not they're not gonna go away. So um it's going to require some quite heavy lifting from the, I mean, they're going to have to really decide if, if they want this and if they want it, they've got to uh, promote it uh, rather than just, well, I'm not saying they don't promote it, but um, you know, it's, it's not going to be good enough just to, 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 to sort of let it continue without, without anyone, um, you know, saying one way or the other, whether they think it's a good thing or not. They've, they've got to really, really get behind it. Um, they seem to be, uh, it's a, they seem to have a mindset to try to shame us at every single opportunity. And I think that this is something we've talked about. On they the show, being the, the, the animal protesters. rights protesters. 
Um, yeah. Like a- any death in racing is too much. That kind of, of mentality. And, and look, it is disturbing to see Hill 16 die in the Grand National, the three horses died at entry. But the, the reality is that with no external pressure whatsoever, the BHA, Irish horse racing, they've all worked extremely hard to reduce fatality rates. And if we really, yes, if we actually focus on how many horses there are in training, how much good and, and incredible lives these horses are given, and that the fatality rate in our sport is less than 1%, it's 0.2%. And if we actually bang on about that and say, well, hold on, life is full of risk. If you really wanted, if you wanted to eliminate all risk, nobody would ever get behind the wheel of a car. Nobody would even sit in a car. There is an average of five deaths on British roads every single day. No one would consume alcohol. Yeah. There's 10,000 deaths alcohol-related in the United Kingdom every single year at a cost of £3.5 billion of alcohol treatment to the NHS. Life is inherent with risk, and it's one of the things that makes it beautiful. It's one of the things that makes it worth living because you have to accept those risks and fight for them. This, no one, is, nobody this, wants is, to, this is the thing. Yeah, no one wants to, to, to fear that they're not going to get to their destination when they get on a plane, and, and nor should you be no. thinking about that. But the likelihood that your plane is going to crash is highly unlikely. You're more likely to be stampled on by a, a herd of donkeys. Um, literally, that's, that's one of the, one of the comparisons all scientists all, all, all make. I, all I'm saying is I think there's a distinction to be made between defending the sport and defending this particular race because I'm slightly worried that uh, there might, I'm not saying this is happening, but there might be a, a, a sort of cast of mind uh that comes up to think, well, the Grand National is like an acceptable victim if it if it if it saves the rest of the sport. And I think that would be a mistake. I think it's very very important that uh, pressure be kept on the industry to make sure it is as safe as possible. As you say, there's a, a lot of good work has been done on that uh, over the last 20, 30 years, but you know, the sport runs on money mm. and if the pressure isn't kept up i do think there's a risk that the money side would begin to take over again so i don't think the pressure is bad per se but um it, it's it's this um idea that that you know nothing is ever going to be acceptable which i find um uh disturbing um and some people apply it to racing in general, jumps racing in general, but others it seems to be particularly focused on this this amazing race, which which let's not forget is is an extraordinary part of of, of national culture. I mean that has to be one of the arguments for for, for, for retaining it. Um, you know, it's not just in terms of the the industry itself. It's it's the whole you know its place in in uh, British uh, cultural history. Yeah, it's a British institution. And they like to say, the animal rights protesters like to say that the public are on their side. Well, they're not. They're on our side. Because seven and a half million people tuned into ITV to watch the race. And they tuned in in the same numbers the year before. And it was eight and a half million before that. 650 million people around the world watching it. 70,000 paying race scores turning up on Grand National Day. 150,000 over three days. They got less than 300 protesters. Now, we're the yeah. ones who should be proud. And we should be celebrating how great this sport is. And... Les Gargot is an amazing example of that. He lived an incredible life until the age of 24. That would not have happened without the racing industry. And to bring it back to him, he had 
a quite unique personality from from what I know. I, I think he was very much known for wanting and seeking affection and, and had quite a quirky personality. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah, uh, Virginia Guest, Raymond Guest's daughter, uh, told me that she thought he uh, he liked women. <laughs> uh, um, and, of course, Dan Moore, the trainer, was, was married to a very strong and knowledgeable uh, woman, Joan Moore. Uh, and Lascargo, I think, uh, in, in, certainly for that period of their yard, was 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 Joan's special horse. There, you know, you can imagine the number of photographs from the old days I've I've, I've gone through, um, and and in a lot of them, Joan seems to be there, not not necessarily in the in in the foreground, but just just there, sort of keeping an eye on him, seemingly. Um, I, I, people might not know, but he what, another. I mean, one of the things that that make him such a an amazing horse, I think, is his versatility. Um, and not only did he did he win over um, uh, the flat hurdles and fences, uh, but he won in the United States as well. He won a race, a steeplechase at Belmont Park, which, uh, you know, how many European horses can say that? Um, and the pictures of, 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 of them over there, it, it, you know, Joan is seems to be in, I think every one of them I've seen with a you know head scarf, whatever. Just just making making sure you know nothing on you know that he's okay, that he's happy. Um, so I think that was a very important relationship in the whole Lescargo story. Did Lescargo's career inspire you to become more of a racing fan and inspire you to write this book? <laughs> Uh, if I'm honest, um, <laughs> not really. I um, I was 15 when the ra- the Grand National he won took place, um, and I don't have the clearest memory, but I'm pretty sure he was just about the first horse I decided could not possibly win the race <laughs> 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 because he was 12 and because you know he. He he tried twice before, so there you go. Uh, never ask me for a tip, Emmett. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, there's plenty of horses I've gotten wrong over over the years, including yeah. spectacularly saying you're on, you're all on the wrong Don. It's Don Poli who will win the Gold Cup, not Don Cossack. Uh, oh dear, <laughs> that was a, that was a lesson I had to learn. So maybe I'll write a book about Don Cossack someday. Um, yeah. In your research about Lescargo, what did you learn about his trainer Dan Moore or his jockey Tommy Carberry that you hadn't known before? I think with Tommy, it was it, it was just such a he was such a great horseman. He just had so many different ways of riding. This is this is this is what people uh, around at the time said about him. You, you you never knew quite how he was going to ride a race. He just seemed to sort of you know. Seem to have this sixth sense in a way of of how to bring out the best in his horses in that particular on that particular day. Because um, it wasn't just Lescargo, obviously he was he was a, he's associated with a, a lot of uh, great horses, and in fact that seventy five Grand National 
was at the end of a, a remarkable month or six weeks for Carberry when he won uh, he won the Gold Cup on 10 up. Uh, a horse who's actually even more forgotten than, than Lescargo, but not quite in, in Lescargo's league. Uh, he then won the Irish National for the first time. Uh, he then fell off, actually, had a bad fall in a novice chase where there was um, uh, quite a, quite, quite, some quite bad falls, and he, he, he um, fractured a collarbone about a week before entry, I think even less than a week before entry. They thought he was going to have to miss the race. Um, uh, but he came out two days later uh, and won the Topham Trophy. Uh, so he was tough as well, Carberry. Um, and he also was small. Uh, there were a few jockeys in those days. It was... It, it, it was it was more common, I think, partly because uh, kids used to come uh, and approach trainers about becoming jockeys, I think, at a younger age um, than they tend to now. Um, and he was very, very small. And and uh, Dan Moore actually sent him away to uh, a, a flat trainer on the Curra. Um, and he was the uh, apprentice champion apprentice on the flat for, I think, two seasons before he came back and started re- uh, riding jumps horses, um, Dan Moore. Uh, he uh, again, it's it's kind of forgotten up to a point that he was a very fine jockey in his day as well. He, 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 he timing wasn't right because um, what would have been the prime of his career came uh, during the Second World War, where um, even if racing was was continuing, you know, public, it wasn't really in the public eye. Um, he won a he he actually as a jockey rode a four timer at Cheltenham once not not the festival but at the race course for he used to ride a lot for Dorothy Paget who owned Gold Miller among others mm. um, and so he was just a very very wily uh, quiet trainer uh, the the period I was looking at him at any rate, he may have been a bit different as a younger man, but but he he was, uh, you know, he 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 had a certain balance and equanimity about him. I think he never um, uh, took the bad things too badly or the good things too 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 well. You know, he knew what racing was like. Um, he was he was he had his eccentricities. He uh, apparently used to keep minor birds flying around at home uh no cage <laughs> so which sometimes startled visitors in the in the family home um but he you know he was uh very much a racing man um looked after his people very well uh referred to everybody in the yard as sunny boy <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah no just just you know, a proper racing man, Dan, 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 Dan Moore. Uh, much, you know, Arthur, who's, who, 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 you know, I'm sure is is the same cut from the same sort of cloth. I think. Yeah, absolutely, and a legendary trainer and a gentleman as well. Is it true yeah. that Lescargo's owner Raymond Guest gave him that name not just because he was born in France, but also because his early pace was quite slow? No, sadly. <laughs> Dang it! He gave him that. He it's a bit. It's it's a bit 
more um, pedantic. He um, he he gave him that name. He wanted he wanted to call him Let's Go, which suggests that his early face wasn't actually that that slow. Uh, but the name was taken, um, and um, so <laughs> Escargo was a sort of alternative to uh, Let's Go. He had an elder brother. Uh, who half brother? Who um, by the time they were thinking about the name for for Lesko, because because remember uh, Raymond Guest didn't buy him until he was a three year old, so it was not like he was named at birth or anything. Um, uh, he didn't buy him and therefore name him until he was he was a three year old. By that time, his older half brother, a horse called Havago, had won some very good hurdle races, and so Guest had an idea. That's why he wanted the word "go" in the name. Because um, you know, because of this uh, elder sibling, and uh, yeah, the uh, Lescargo was a combination of that and the sire, who, as you say, came to came to Kildare from France, was called Escart, Escart the uh, Third. He unfortunately died very young, Escart, or, or um, uh, he'd be a lot better known than than he actually is today. Uh, so it was a combination of Escar from him and Go from Have a Go. I love that. Um, um, but I think your version is probably better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, the other story is an intriguing one, but we like to get to the truth, though. At the same yeah, time. It's, a bit, it's a bit like the uh, Foynaven story, <laughs> Copping <laughs> Grass. It's, it, it's unfortunately the truth. T- it's one of the um, problems with being a writer. The truth often uh, isn't as beguiling as the the myth. Yeah, it turns out sometimes the truth can get in the way of a good story, but I like that name and I like how yeah. it came about. Um, <laughs> what do you hope readers will take away from your book? I, 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 I just want, you know, think he deserves to be remembered. Um, uh, he's just totally fallen out of um, any sort of, 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 of public memory, uh, I think. Even, I, I, I mean, I'm not as familiar with, what the racing public in Ireland thinks as, as I am over here. But it, even I think in Ireland, he's not, you know, it, because even, he, you know, when he was running, Arkell was still rightly casting a, a, a huge shadow over every close. And, 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 you know, footballers, everyone for a while was waiting the next Pele was. Everyone in most of us, Escargo's career was waiting to see who the next Arkell was. And of course, the answer was there wasn't one. <laughs> um, so his whole I, I, I just um, it, it probably sounds sentimental but I just think he, he, he deserves his due he, he also a lot of the big races he ran um, he didn't get his due even then the, the, the first bumper he, his first race was a bumper at Nace for about three and sixpence and uh, the, the favourite for the race was the latest horse to come off the um, Tom Draper conveyor belt. Um, and Lascargo was kind of an afterthought. So when uh, he won that race, the public was by and large disgruntled because they'd mostly bet on this uh, Draper horse who was supposed to win. Um, the first time he won the Cheltenham Gold Cup, uh, he was up against a horse called Kinloch Bray. Oh, yeah. Uh, who was a brilliant horse, 
uh, ran in the Ark Colours because he was owned by Anne, Duchess of Westminster. Um, and yeah, it was an absolutely superb horse. Favourite for the Gold Cup, Escargo, believe it or not, was 33 to 1 outsider. Um, and so, again, when he won, Kinloch Bray came down three three from the end. Um, and um, a lot of the attention was on Kinloch Bray not winning rather than Lescargo winning. Uh, and, of course, we've already talked about, you know, his Grand National win was the same thing. It was Red Rum not winning, not Lescargo winning. So, you know, I think... <laughs> I, I think it's about time uh, somebody gave him his due, and I, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I hadn't done it. I don't think anyone else was going to. I'm sure there's a better modern example than the one I'm about to give, but the one that stands out is Cue Card, because he was a 50 to one shot when he won the champion bumper and sunk some favourites. Uh, he was then an right. even money favourite for the Supreme Novice Hurdle and gets turned over. He beats Vitor, the mighty Vitor, poor old thing. Uh, oh, yes, in the King yes, George yes, sunk yes. him. I, I was bowling that day and I think that from my perspective as a fan I, th- I think that influenced me negatively against him and it was through no right. fault of cue cards like it was nothing to no. do with it he hadn't done anything wrong no absolutely except no, scuppered well, that, a few that. of my bets and, and made me think about him in, in a different way and you have to put that to one side particularly as a broadcaster you're not supposed to be biased although it can be fun to be at times um, yeah but, you know he did win multiple Betfair chases he won a King George he won a, a Ryanair but he had gone to Cheltenham many times with huge hope. And while he won uh, a champion bumper and won a Ryanair, he was beaten by Sprinter Soccer and Oracle, beaten as an odds-on favourite in the Supreme when people thought he should have been going for the champion hurdle, uh, fall, fell in a Gold Cup when he was going for the, the big treble that year and, and win the... Yeah, well, they are, yeah, well it's, it's the same sort of thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember I, I backed Votor in that George King oh. George as well, so... Uh, it was quite agonising, wasn't it? But oh. It's it's probably easier for me to do that after sort of forty years than <laughs> you after two or whatever <laughs> how long it's been. But no, yeah, it's exactly that sort of feeling. I think I'm forty one this month, so there's a few old years on the clock. Um, my mother bought me some lovely racing paintings a number of years ago, but well over fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. One of them is of the minstrel. Um, one uh-huh. is is Golden Miller, and the other is Lescargo, and they're oh wow they're in my sitting room, and it's Lescargo beating Red Rum in the Grand National. So I was thinking about that oh, today wonderful. before interviewing you that you are right, like his name does not ring as legendary as it should, particularly given his exploits. But I think you've explained brilliantly as to why, and hopefully he will now very much come back into the public consciousness because he deserves that, and his legacy deserves it. Uh, what yeah, advice no, would you I, give I, I to? What advice, David, would you give to any aspiring writers who are looking to tell their own compelling stories about real legendary racing figures like Lescargo? Hmm. Um, be true to yourself, I, I, I suppose. Uh, you know, write what you want to write. Um, uh, what you, I, I mean, the subject. And then once you've picked your subject... Uh, research it. Don't don't take shortcuts on the on on, on the research. Um, uh, unfortunately, my 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 re- regret, obviously, on uh, the Scargo was I, I I left it slightly too long. Uh, and and you know I'd have loved to have been able to talk to Tommy Carberry about the races uh, that he rode on him, but uh, that was no longer 
possible. Um, for book, uh, I got the timing right because I, all the first seven past the post, I think, uh, the jockeys were still with us. And um, I did something like probably 100 interviews for that book. And no matter how badly an interview you might think it's going, almost always you get something. Just, just Even if it's just one little detail, um, these are the things that, 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 that often help bring, bring a book alive. You know, the tiny little, tiny little details that only one or two people could possibly know. So, um, I think that's what I'd say: is be true to yourself. Choose a subject that you're really enthusiastic about, and then, you know, really un, uh, turn over every stone. Don't don't decide something's not worth doing. You can you can never tell when when get an absolute. Um, pearl of wisdom from somebody. Excellent advice. No Snail, the story of Lescargo, the horse that foiled Red Rum, is available to purchase now. It's on Amazon and all good bookshops and some rubbish ones as well. David Owen, it has been an absolute <laughs> pleasure talking to you today. No, likewise. Thanks ever so much, Emmett. Yeah, it's been a, a, an absolute pleasure. And I hope you've enjoyed this trip down memory lane. I highly recommend the book. It is a fantastic read. And please, God, we'll get to talk to David again very, very soon. More content coming your way very soon on the Final Frontline Podcast. From all of us, we'll talk to you soon. God bless.